Hello and welcome back to the summer edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. And I know just what you're thinking. What on earth is the relevance of that? It is, of course, big country, as performed by the legendary drummer Cozy Powell and his band. And we're going to be hearing from him a little bit later on. Now, also this month, we're heading back to 1969 to hear from a new band of the time who just released their debut album. They were called Yes, and they were embarking on a European tour pretty much for the first time. Plus, we will remember a landmark cinematic release from 50 years ago as well. We'll also have all of the press reviews, and we've got a special feature on Richie Blackmore and his band Rainbow, who 40 years ago this month unveiled a new band with a new sound and new direction. And we will hear archive interviews from the late, great Cozy Powell, Graham Bonnet, and of course the man himself, Richie Blackmore. But first, the story of the month, ACDC are to tour in 2020 with Brian Johnson and Phil Rudd back in situ. Well, that was what everybody was expecting, of course, to be announced last week. But uh, in typical ACDC fashion, what we expected wasn't what we got. Yes, they did break radio silence, but it was to begin the 40th birthday celebrations of the album that propelled them to rock superstars back in the late 70s. In 1979, of course, in July, 
Highway to Hell was released, which for a lot of people remains the best thing they ever produced. It was also, of course, the last album with the much-missed Bon Scott. It was the first US Top 20 album. It went on to sell 7 million copies in the USA. It was a UK Top 10 album. It wasn't all plain sailing, though. The album's title, for one, wasn't exactly warmly welcomed. Uh, What did Angus and Malcolm Young, though, remember about that time around the album's release? Touring a lot. Touring constantly. And then we have three weeks off, we'd be in the studio. And some nights doing club gigs in Sydney to help pay expenses. Still, we was, you know, we never really made much money back then. It was always, we were always broke. We were always borrowing off Angus because he was the only one that didn't drink, you know. <laughs> and somebody but, had to be yeah. sober. <laughs> but, uh, but it made a bit of space for us to get the songs together for Highway to Hell Ideas. And, uh, and, and then that was the album that really happened for us in the states you know it went yeah. gold you yeah. know and uh, yeah. and highway to hell just got them by the throat the track itself the, yeah. the title track you know it uh, yeah. that sent the religious maniacs after us yeah. <laughs> it did everything it shouldn't have done in, in that yeah. area it's but kind it, of funny really because when they were first came out they said uh, the album uh, you know had people at the time were saying, oh, you should call it that, you know, especially on, on the American side, you know. And they were saying, no, you know, it won't get played in the southern parts, it won't get... And, and funny enough, it was like they were the first places to start playing it. Yeah, Jacksonville's and places like All that. down the south, and, you know, that was the first <laughs> areas that started picking it up, so... We thought, hey, we're doing something wrong, all right. <laughs> and, the, and the track itself was, you know, there's had all sorts of connotations put to it. But if you yeah. listen to the lyrics, it was it was our six years on the road, on the road, so nonstop. You know, it was our way of describing the, you know, the tr- in, the in, you know, you know, you know, three words or less. You know, it was highway to hell, and it was nice and simple, and it was just describing your life on the road. You know, of course, we had the title track. It was also, a, you know, a good track, solid track you know, that got us a lot of airplay, you know, especially on the on the rock radio. And it started to change the mould, you know, of the, you know the radio and stuff at that time. And you started getting back into, you know, a, you know, there's harder music coming back into play again. Right, and and the disco thing was dying. Yeah. Was uh, on its way to. They were called Death to Disco, it was. That's right. They would smash, they'd put a BG record on for 10 seconds and go, (laughs) and then stick on Highway to Hell, you know, rocks back, you know. (laughs) And it's pissed. Now, 1969, it was a landmark year, certainly for prog rockers. On July 25th of this year, a British band by the name of Yes released their first album called Yes, or the Yes album, whichever you prefer. It was released on the Atlantic record label after the band had famously auditioned for Ahmed Ertegun at the old Speakeasy Club in London, or the Speak as it was known, of course, to those who frequented. Uh, the band at the time were John Anderson, Peter Banks, Chris Squire, Tony Kay, and, of course, 
Bill Bruford on the drums. Now, the songs, eight in total, six original recordings. I See You was a Jim McGuinn, of course, of the Birds, David Crosby song. And Every Little Thing, which was a Lennon and McCartney cover. Now, in those days, a review was waited for with bated breath in general, and they were all highly appreciative as well of this uh, new band. Lester Banks was regarded by some as America's greatest rock and roll critic of the time. He was writing for Rolling Stone, and his view was, it's the kind of album that sometimes insinuates itself into your routine with totally unexpected thrusts of musical power. They don't write reviews like that anymore, do they? So then, to the uninitiated, which was pretty much most of everybody at the time, what were these boys all about then? Now, occasionally, you can dig up these old interviews of the time, and that's exactly what we've got here. Now, this was Yes in Germany back in 1969 on an early, very early European tour explaining to a really rather very nice German chap who they were, where they came from, just what they stood for. Where do you come from? London. My mother. My mother. <laughs> yeah, we all live in London, yeah. yeah. Yes, we all live in London. Yes. Uh, the group has been formed in London? That's right. Originally, one, yeah. One year ago. Yeah. From the Shas to the Big Apple. That's what I say. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, you are the first British pop group exclusively booked by a major American record company. Do you think it's a good deal or how do you feel about it? Yes, we're very, very happy about the deal. We just think that the thing we'd like to get most of all from Atlantic Records is possibly their expert knowledge of the American market. True. You're very spoken. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead right. Oh, yes, I'll do that. Yeah. Do you think your fortune will be in the USA or in Europe? All over, all over, everywhere. I'd like to in Russia, actually. I'd like to play in Russia. Is it nice playing Russia? China. Because uh, Russia and China, because I don't think they have anything of that over there, do they, in, in Russia? I think it'd be the, good for the, a group kids, to go and play in Russia. kids hear the music there, but they never, sort of, they never see any bands or anything. It'd be great to play there, you know. Somewhere like Moscow, like, you know. We'd just like to go everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere and just, just yeah, play our music and no. hope we turn a few people on at the same time. At the British Jazz and Blues Festival, you played very successfully with the prominent American jazz singer John Hendricks. What do you think about mixing pop music with jazz? Yeah, well, beautiful. With John Hendricks, you know, he's a beautiful singer, a beautiful jazz singer. And there's not so much difference between what we play and what he sings. He sings blues, really, blues jazz, you know. We play blues jazz in, in a way, you know. So you like the mixing up jazz and, and yeah, pop yeah. music? Yeah, everything. Well, you classical, know, you know, it's, uh, yeah. you can't really put it into categories, you know. It's, it's, all it's, all, it's all music, yeah. Yeah, it's all music. Uh, do you believe a pop musician has a message in our society? Music has. Yes, go um, out and enjoy yourself and don't think about what you did the day before yesterday. <laughs> and yeah, tomorrow. That's a very good philosophy. Yeah. As in now, you know? It's for enjoyment. It's really for enjoyment. Music is it probably has a message for, for a lot of people, but, but I think that, that, that probably the message can be overlooked for the enjoyment's sake of it. It always has a message because people who are, who are talking and singing about it have got a message anyway. But, but it's for enjoyment and for listening to, I think. Um, 
Are you interested in uh, social problems or in politics anyway? <clears throat> yes, but not in a professional capacity. <laughs> I don't, um, at any, anyway, a band at our stage of development, I don't think it would be right for us to go a preaching and a teaching. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do Very good. Uh, do you feel well in Germany? Yeah, yeah. it's clean. It's, it's clean. It's clean, it's yeah. Clean. Yeah, it's, it's clean. clean. The food is marvelous. The food's good, the chips yeah, are good. It's yeah. sinking. And they have, Germany, yeah. they have signposts on the roads. <laughs> they don't Which have is a bit different either. to England. We don't have signposts at all. You just go, it's a mind telepathy thing. You don't, you don't look at signposts. It seems to rain every afternoon as well, which is very weird. Every afternoon it pours with rain, you know. But that's when we get up. That's when they work. <laughs> Excuse me while I have a grub. They get up and <laughs> groove along. Well, thank you very much for your coming and yeah. thank you. soon thank back. You. Thank you. Bye. 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 Yes, heard for the first time in 1969 in Germany on the first leg of the European tour. And sage advice there for any other band thinking of mixing politics with music. Don't go a-preaching and a-teaching. And so after that, of course, how about a celebratory song from that 50th anniversary of the Yes album? This is Looking Around. Now, just before we leave 1969, there's another notable 50th anniversary this month of July, and it's a movie. It celebrated American counterculture of the time. It was two guys on motorbikes traveling across the American South, New Orleans, in time for Mardi Gras, in part funded 
using money received from a cocaine deal. The film starred Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Phil Spector and Jack Nicholson. It was, of course, Easy Rider, which was filmed in a way back then which was never seen before. No studios were used. Uh, just a small crew that were using these new uh, lightweight mobile cameras actually filmed entirely out on the open road or wherever they landed. Now, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young were originally going to provide the music for the soundtrack, but they were fired by Dennis Hopper, which was perhaps just as well, really, because had they not have been, we may well never have had this opening sequence. A lot of pills But I've never touched nothing That my spirit could kill You know I've seen a lot of people walking around With tombstones in their eyes
That was Steppenwolf, of course, the pusher, followed by Born to be Wild. Now, there were loads of amusing anecdotes around the production of this film, including perhaps one of the best ever, which was that they decided to throw a rap party, nothing wrong with that, of course, uh, before realising, actually, at the end of the rap party, they hadn't actually filmed the final scene, which was supposed to be uh, the pivotal scene of the entire film, around the uh, campfire. Now, despite all of the shock and horror suffered by the studio execs when they actually saw some of the early rushes of this. Uh, all was forgotten when the uh, film ended up grossing some 60 million over time uh, for a production cost of about half. And of course, don't forget, it produced a soundtrack as well, which also made the top 10. Now, there was little in the way of really interesting news to concentrate on this month, so let's jump straight into the press review and see who's writing about what in the press this month. Now, Planet Rock have given us the 100 greatest albums of the 1970s, which, if nothing else, gives us, of course, the chance to scoff at uh, the obvious missed albums and the positions that they've placed the albums in, but we all love a list. Now, the answer to the next question is no. I'm certainly not going to list the entire hundred. You'll have to buy the magazine for that. But I will give you the top ten. Bowie's Aladdin Sane was at number ten. Paranoid from Sabbath was at number nine. Sticky Fingers at eight. Floyd's Wish You Were Here was next. Power Rage at six. Uh, Zep four at five. Live and Dangerous, of course, was next. By Thin Lizzy. Dark Side of the Moon at three. Here's one that might surprise you. At number two, Rising by Rainbow. Number one. Led Zeppelin, physical graffiti. What did Jimmy Page then think about that album more than four decades on? And he's quoted as saying, well, it's quite momentous, really, isn't it? And I don't think there's any arguments there, really. But what I thought was equally momentous was the fact that they gave credence to the equally epic Rising by Rainbow, which even now... Uh, and I had this on just a couple of days ago as a sprawling epic and very deserving, I think, of their placing as well. And good to see Live and Dangerous as well, given its juice. And the moment I bought this, and I did it uh, back in its year of release on Double Album, which I still have, and it still gets played regularly as well, and for good reason, uh, it captures the band at their incendiary best. I always loved that term used to describe a live act in full flow. Incendiary best at the peak of their powers. Been used a few times, I think, in, in uh, reviews down the years. Of course, it was quite a poignant month as well for Thin Lizzy as the uh, late Phil Lynott's mother, Philomena, passed away in the last four weeks. Now back to anniversary celebrations, there's a big feature on the perennial favourite Saxon who are on their 40th anniversary trek, uh, the ever amiable Biff Bifer talking about how and where it all began for him, starting with uh, early tragedy when he lost his mother. Uh, when he was just 11 years of age, and then his father losing an arm two years later in an industrial accident. He was a very big supporter of his son's quest to become a musician and rock star. Uh, and how did Biff actually fund the dream? Well, he worked down the mines, believe it or not, in case you didn't know. Uh, then came the deal with Carrera Records, of course, more famous as a disco label back in the day. The first trip out as support with Motorhead on the Wheels of Steel album came next, followed by Strong Arm of the Law. The rest, of course, is history. Their debut U.S. tour was as support to Rush. Now, can you imagine 
two more diverse acts on the same bill, Rush and Saxon. Would have been a great night. And of course, what's also good to see about Saxon is they keep putting out incredibly good albums. A good piece with Sammy Hagar as well covers all the bases from first picking up a guitar back in 1964, the solo career Montrose Van Halen. What actually killed Van Halen then after eight years of non-stop success? Well, to quote Sammy, drugs, alcohol, insecurities and bad management. And no Sam interview would be complete without a question on David Lee Roth. I don't respect his creativity or his artistry, he said, but he is clever and he is a great showman. And of course, we touch on the Cabo Wabo situation, the millions, of course, he made from tequila and now rum and the latest offering from The Circle, the album called Space Between, which is as good as anything that he's done as well since the 1980s. And it's a landmark month for Prog Magazine as well. It makes its 100th issue. And yes, there is a a list of sorts, and it is a good one. The 100 icons of Prog. Members of the Prog world, past and present, are all asked who influenced them. First up, according to Gary Kemp, he of Saucerful of Secrets and other bands, the godfather of Prog. Well, it's simply said, Robert Fripp. And he, like many of us, as I expect, had their first introduction to prog, although we might not have known it at the time, hearing 20th century schizoid man from in the court of the Crimson King. And one other thing which is interesting here about King Crimson is all of their output is now available on streaming devices. Well, it's available on Spotify. Not sure about anybody else, but their entire catalogue, it appears, is pretty much on there for you to discover. Uh, Then you'll find uh, loads of other unusual names and a lot of surprises in these lists here and uh, answers to who influenced who. Kate Bush, Elton John, Miles Davis, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney as well. Uh, Then head over to the reviews section for a critique on the Frank Zappa hologram tour. Now the hologram itself appears only for four numbers. Otherwise, as the review says, it's a totally enjoyable show, a visual feast and celebration of a musical genius, which is good to hear as well. Plenty of people have had a lot of negative views posted about uh, not only Zappa, but Dio's hologram tour. Simple answer is, if you don't agree with it, don't go. Meanwhile, over at the Royal Albert Hall, an evening with Roger Hodgson, he, of course, of uh, Supertramp, was described as a delightful respite from reality. And so, to the event of the month. Rick Wakeman's 70th birthday, and in his column he describes his big day. Would you like a nice birthday breakfast, darling? inquired his wife, to which he replied, Sod off, I don't want breakfast, I'm old, I'm surprised I've still got my own teeth. To which she replied, uh, you haven't, dear. Then it was off to the supermarket, uh, where he said he proceeded to do what all other 70-year-olds do block aisles with trolleys, uh, take things from shelves and then put them back in somewhere completely different to where you picked them up. Uh, Farting in public, uh, that actually caused much mirth and jumping the queue at the checkout. All in all, a fabulous day for Rick on his 70th birthday. 
Classic Rock. Their magazine is edited by the stars this month. And we have, ironically, uh, the story of the album Down to Earth, which included, as we know, not only new boy Graham Bonnet, but Don Airy and Roger Glover as well. Lots of interesting bits and pieces, uh, like the fact that Cozy Powell refused to drum on Since You've Been Gone until Glover intervened. Glover didn't actually want much to do with it either. Uh, Bonnet rocking up to his audition in a suit and a tie with slick back hair. Uh, singing mistreated and Don Airy remembering as everybody else did. This guy was pretty much the best singer we'd ever heard. Uh, reviews are not so great, actually, from the album. If you look back at the time, the sage of the time, and indeed now, Jeff Barton says, Since you've been gone, I can't imagine Blackmore stooping so low as to ever play this live. And 40 years on, with Richie out on the road with Rainbow again this summer, you can be sure you will hear since you've been gone. A long-lived vinyl magazine offers the 150 albums you need to discover, the ones that you might have a little interest in checking out. Uh, Towns Van Zant, live at the Old Quarter in Texas. Best described, as said the reviewer here, drinking bourbon from a chipped teacup whilst listening. Jeff Barrett was the reviewer. Failing that, slurp it from a saucer. Uh, and Gene Clark, no other, from 1974. Now, I remember listening to a mini documentary on Gene Clark, Tragic Story, uh, and in particular, the story behind this album, which was basically costing millions upon millions to actually make, which in the mid-70s was unheard of. It was actually funded by David Geffen, who was the head of Asylum Records back then, uh, I sought this out on Spotify a few years ago, and I've still got it on a playlist. Lots of critics who hated it. Uh, but as it says here in this review, those who know, know. And that is all you need to know. Go and search it out and listen to it. You will not be disappointed. A record collector have King Crimson front cover. And they have, as we said, only recently put their entire catalogue on Spotify. The band that Jimi Hendrix hailed at the time as being the best band in the world. Gene Simmons, he of KISS, talks the end of the road tour, and uh, we're reminded that back in 1974, the Seattle Daily Times, after seeing them live, offered a little homely advice. They said, I hope the four guys in this band are putting money away for the future because KISS will not be around long. Five decades on, and we're still here. They're selling out arenas, as they have done for donkey's years. Uh, asked about the fans' reaction to this tour, the end of the road tour. And the Simmons went on to say, he said, I am so grateful every time we get onto stage. He said, let's call it for what it is. We blow a lot of shit up and we give people the best show on earth and it's really quite difficult to argue with that if you go over to youtube of course people video clips of live gigs for years now but you've just got to look at the intro to this end of the road tour it is absolutely super spectacular uh, and yes they have as well talked about having four unknowns carrying on the legacy of the band when they finally hang up the guitars and the makeup and on that legendary merchandise setup, he said, listen, we made bowling balls, sneakers, bras, coffins, even toilet seats, he said. So, yes, you can quite literally sit on my face. Uh, Uncut has Springsteen front cover. Most interest there is the Woodstock at 50 review. 
Over at Bass Player Magazine, Tom Hamilton is front cover. He's talking about Aerosmith at 50 and the Vegas residency, which is, without going to geek, as a, a quite phenomenal uh, technical array for the shows. They've teamed up with THX and L Acoustics. Now, if you've got the remastered box of Star Wars uh, DVDs or Blu-rays, you'll know THX because they did the sound on all of those. That's the original Star Wars, by the way, the proper ones, not the garbage that they uh, serve up today. So it is Aerosmith in a hyper-immersive real surround. Uh, which album is he most proud of? Well, it's a trio, he said, Toys in the Attic, Rocks and Pump. And after 50 years, is there still new ground to cover, he's asked. Well, yeah, there are still places in the world that Aerosmith want to play, the places that have fans we've never been to. Uh, Cuba, for instance, he'd love to do Cuba. And I will always be open, he said, to another record. Why not? Indeed. You know, it's actually a shame because the last album, Music from Another Dimension, was cruelly underplayed and there were some absolutely fantastic Aerosmith songs on that album. Now, 40 years ago this July, July the 28th if you want to be exact, Richie Blackmore unveiled to the world a new incarnation of his band, Rainbow. After three albums recorded with the legendary sound of Ronnie James Dio, including perhaps the greatest rock album of any era, Rising, in came something of a surprise choice as lead vocalist Graham Bonnet, a new singer, a new sound and a new direction. And with it, two tracks in particular released as singles which have become mainstays of rock compilations, FM radio and playlists alike. The album was, of course, down to earth, and the two songs in particular we were talking about there, Since You've Been Gone and All Night Long. Now, the band itself consisted of Richie Blackmore, of course, Cozy Powell on drums, Graham Bonnet, Don Airy, and of course there was a return for producer and bass player Roger Glover. Now, the album was a big success. It went to number six in the UK chart, 66 on the Billboard Top 100, uh, Since You've Been Gone charted at number six and all night long went to number five. The album itself in the UK went gold with sales of over 100,000. But this wasn't to be a problem-free era, though, for Rainbow, despite those successes. Cozy Powell hated Since You've Been Gone so much that initially he actually refused to play on it. For many fans, though, they simply wondered why, after the epic rising and long-live rock and roll, two of the best hard rock albums of the era, why did they actually need to make so many changes at all? Well, here's legendary drummer Cozy Powell explaining why those changes were absolutely necessary. Because they're lousy tea makers, basically, I think it is. They can't seem to make tea at all. And, uh, you know, if they don't get the tea right, then they have to go. It's as simple as that. You know, we don't stand any mess in the back when it's tea. I think the reason, basically, to be serious for a moment is um, the fact that Richie and myself have got certain standards that we like to do. If musicians in the band don't give 110%, then they get booted out rather sharply. And one or two of the musicians we've had in the band have not given 110%, consequently are no longer with us. I mean, it's a very competitive business, being in a rock band such as Rainbow. Uh, you've got bands coming up all the time that are trying to blow you off, trying to do this, trying to do that. You have to be on top of the situation all the time. And if you're not, then you, you're just going to fall by the wayside. And um, I think this lineup is going to last for a while. I certainly hope so. 
Everyone seems very excited about the new Rainbow record, and particularly the single, which sounds very much like a hit. Heaven forbid. <laughs> is, is it your intention to have a hit single? I mean, would it matter if you had one, for your credibility, or what? Um, it wouldn't matter in Europe, no. It, it would matter no way at all, I don't think, because the band has been very successful in England and Europe. Because, basically, the kids over here have, have helped us, you know, kick off the whole career of the thing was done over in Europe. The States is a different market. We have to break the States to be considered a credible worldwide band. And the more popular we can get in the States, the more money we can spend on the stage show. So it all has its relevance. Now, at the time, very few people in the rock fraternity had ever heard of Graham Bonnet. So how exactly did he end up getting the job? Well, Richie was trying to find somebody that uh, could uh, clean his room at the hotel. And Graham knocked at the door with his, uh, you know... <laughs> room cleaning kit on and sang a few verses of uh, something and Richie decided that that was good enough for, for Rainbow. I think actually what happened, um, we were all playing, having an oldies session uh, at the studio one night and only one woman came on and everybody said, what's, he, what's this guy doing? He's got such a tremendous range. We'd like to get him out to see what he sings like these days. And he came out to the Chateau where we were recording the new album and proceeded to sing Mistreated better than Ronnie Dio had done which made everybody sit up and go, oh, huh, this guy's a bit good. So we tried him on a few other things, and everything he sang was great, and he put it across really good. And we'd auditioned several, I think maybe 30 or 40 singers, to try and find the right guy, and Graham just came along and fitted in perfectly. Having to follow Ronnie Dio wasn't easy anyway, and Graham did it with so much ease that uh, that's why he's in the band. playing heavy metal music or thereabouts in a lot of well-known bands for over 10 years now. Mm -hmm. What do you think's changed about heavy metal? I don't think the actual format of music in heavy metal has changed too much. The same sort of people that were playing heavy metal music 10 years ago are still playing it and still popular by kids that buy records and listen to radio as well. I think the, the fact of 
heavy metal is so popular is because it maintains a certain level all the time and it has done over 10 years which is why kids would always still buy old tracks from from bands that possibly aren't even together now for example purple i mean you always get purple uh, records requested all the time um possibly it's because they they maintain such a good standard and i hope that rainbow over the years can do the same the same thing that purple did on then to graham bonnet here he is in 1979 talking about meeting richie blackmore and his time in rainbow somebody i'm very proud to have met and somebody i'm very proud to have worked with because he gave me uh, the chance to sing the way i wanted to sing and the kind of music i wanted to sing um richie himself is a very shy guy you know he um has this sort of image in the press that who uh, uh you know where they say he's like the man in black and mysterious and all that kind of stuff and standoffish but richie is very shy and he only talks to people that he really likes to talk to or wants to talk to he, he and i got on very well and uh, as i said i'm very proud to have been with uh, rainbow now the problems arose almost as soon as Greg Bonnet arrived. Now the main area of concern being his uh, insistence on remaining clean-shaven, nicely clothed, jackets and Hawaiian shirts, his favourite outfit, and having short hair. Here then is Richie Blackmore remembering those times with Graham in the band and how at times they had to resort to various tactics to actually stop Bonnet from actually getting out of the hotels and going to barber's shops. I said, Graham, you know, our audience expects you to be a bit more, you know, not shaved and a bit long hair, kind of a bit more dirty. Like, yeah, well, I used to have long hair. And we're going, okay. And um, it sounds like Graham. And uh, it's because I used to have long hair, but I cut it, you know, because I, you know, I don't want that. Yeah, but, you know, our audience doesn't want that. Las Vegas style lame jacket and smooth hair. They want a rough looking guy, you know. So by the time I thought, by the time we get, if if we let him grow his hair, at least that'll get longer for the, the first night in Newcastle, which was about three months away. I thought at least we can get his hair to his collar, you know, or something, you know, and uh, rough him up a bit. And he kept threatening to have his hair cut, you know, but really short. And we go, that's not going to work with the fans in 79, 80. Everybody was like, little look, long hair, rough, whatever. So we, we got Colin Hart to room next to him. I said, you know what? You make sure he doesn't leave his room. He might go and get his hair cut. You know, and it's just getting kind of longer now. He's looking a bit rough and he looks more, you know, for, the, for our audience. So... Colin goes, leave it to me. He won't get past me. Because he kept his door open and he was right next to uh, Graham. And uh, so I went, good, good. Because at least he's now looking a bit the part that we can kind of you know, play to our rough audience. You know, They don't want to see a smooth Las Vegas guy. So what happens is uh, Colin calls me up. Oh no, guess what? I went, what? And he goes, he got out the back window, got into a taxi and has had his hair cut. And I went, ah, oh. you know, I was seething at the time. It was the whole principle of the thing. It doesn't matter if you're losing your hair or whatever. He went out and purposely shaved his hair and he was shaved it right short, like he was going to appear as David Copperfield, at, you know, whatever. 
I was seething. And he, and he did it. He knew. He, we, he, we told him a thousand times, do not cut your hair. Just let it grow and be natural. And, you, and I think you'll be accepted by the fans because then you'll look rough. Nope. Went out, came back. Of course, he looked ridiculous. On stage that night, I was seriously contemplating hitting, hitting him over the head with my guitar. He was singing to the audience and doing his bit, and I saw the back of the shaved neck, you know, that, you know, very, you know, cut hair, and I went, I'm just going to put my guitar across his head, but then I might. I'll be back in prison again, you know. I really was, like, so tempted just to take it off and go, whack, you know. Because he'd done it deliberately out of contempt. He knew that to be in our band, it was about roughness and kind of, you know, denim jackets. And, and he'd gone out of his way to be Mr. Smooth again. Because he used to have long hair. And it was like... So after that, there was no... There was no communication. It was total breakdown. It was like, you're in another world. Go to Las Vegas. You need to be in Las Vegas. We have our audience, which is, you know, heavy rockers. They don't need to see Mr. Las Vegas, you know. And that really was about it, although he did return, actually, to start work on the follow-up. And as he said, actually, he fired himself on the phone from Los Angeles. Now, Richie then uh, drafted in Jolin Turner, of course, who stayed for three albums before Richie himself wound the band up for a while to go back to Deep Purple. Now, these days, Richie can be seen touring with Rainbow, most summers, actually, these days, with Ronnie Romero, who has an absolutely incredible vocal range. And there have been some sporadic releases of new and reworked songs, The Storm, the most recent of those, and Black Sheep of the Family as well, both of which are worth a listen. And so, too, is Down to Earth. The album, which was remastered and came out in a deluxe edition a few years ago as well. So go and seek it out and remind yourself just how good it and Rainbow were, whatever guys they were in. And that just about wraps up this month's show then. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us if you want via Facebook at Tim Capel Rock Classics. We will be back again toward the end of August. Until then, enjoy the summer, if indeed it's summer where you are, or the winter, or the spring, or the autumn. Bye-bye.